Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 18. Teacher, says Ione Sala, with a faint smile that's all she can manage, and a voice that should be more seductive but isn't. Can I stay a moment after class and ask you something in private? No sweat. Calm. If she lets herself feel too much, she'll sweat, and that will be visible. Don't think. Don't feel. Nothing except what's necessary now. Keltham tilts his head, weighs the matter, nods. He has no room on his schedule left for today, but he can as easily say that to her in private, and doesn't exactly want to. Discourage people from asking. Well, that's bold. Carissa files out, succeeding at looking totally unthreatened by this, and actually succeeding at being mostly unthreatened by this. The kid has barely talked. She's getting a late start. Which is suggestive that there's something up here that Carissa doesn't understand. She turns invisible on leaving the classroom and turns around to slip back in. Move along, Elias tells her telepathically and also curtly. So this is not about flirting with Keltham. She moves along. Ione considers possible options. She has to. There's no choices except thinking now. If she leads into words that sound like, like what she's planning to say, then the security team won't, they won't jump to conclusions, right? They'll know Ione knows that there's security there. But people don't always think what you wish they would think. Ione casts Detect Magic, and while Keltham's head is turned watching the last students go, she gives her best significant, solemn nod to the invisible security team. Keltham doesn't particularly see it. When the last students are gone, and of course the security team is still there, Ione approaches Keltham. Did you mean what you said about how Dothilan sees law and chaos? She inquires in a low voice, now trying to look serious and not seductive at all. Yes, Keltham is more surprised than disappointed. Will you keep my important personal secret if I tell it to you? Ione says. Serious, she has to look serious. Does that commit me to anything more than just not repeating your secret, not giving it away by other means, unless and until the information makes its way to me by channels unrelated to the fact of your originally telling it to me? Ione takes a moment to parse this. It sounds right. And if he's trying to trick her, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? No, that sounds correct. Then yes. Keltham doesn't know what this is about, and might on other occasions hesitate more to learn others' secrets, but he is definitely currently in the sort of situation where he should say yes to secrets offered under standard secrecy conditions. I have sympathies in directions that are not all the way to the side of lawful which is a thing that some of your other girls might accept about me, and some would think it meant they needed to steer clear of me. On the whole, it's more convenient for me if it's just not suspected. But you're a whole lot clearer on why chaos would exist and why it would have any use or any place in the universe than... than I even understood myself before you... Well, people here are confused, like you said. It takes a second for Keltham to hypothesize why this would be as terribly serious of a matter as 
glance at Nametag again, Ioni Sala is making it sound, even taking into account that lawful versus chaotic is an even bigger political deal here, and that people here are kind of strange about politics. Is the idea here that you're secretly not with Asmodeus, Keltham says, now instinctively lowering his own voice. She wasn't even planning to. But if he wants that, hopes for it. Knowledge, she says. She wishes she could make her voice breathy and seductive, but it's all she can do to stay in the guidelines of solemnity. Mysteries, the planes, the way that everything is connected. Magic, trying new things. Nethys. She hasn't said outright that she belongs to Nethys, which she doesn't know. Maybe that will count for something. Oh, she's so dead. I will keep your secret, since if you had not trusted me, I couldn't have done anything with that secret anyways. But I hope you understand that I'm not planning to betray the Chelish government, or Asmodeus, unless they betray me first. Or are you telling me that they've done so? Ione quickly shakes her head, and then says, No, out loud, in case Dathalani don't understand headshakes. I'm not telling you that, just... She can't make herself sound seductive enough, not under this much tension. But Keltham's society has some kind of weird posturing about frankness, maybe even just values actual frankness in a balance whose possibility she can't understand. So if she tries to pretend that kind of honesty, play to that. I'm sorry, she says, hoping she's successfully putting sincerity into her voice. I... I'm not very experienced. In some ways, I wish I could say this in a way that's more pleasing to you. She swallows, which takes almost no effort at all, and makes sure she's looking Keltham straight in the eyes. To someone who belongs to Nethys, who wants to understand magic, understand everything, the mysteries behind them and how everything is connected, what you told us all today, it's more than someone who follows Nethys could easily repay. If you keep teaching me things like that, or us. I don't mind if others learn it too, like you said. It's about how much we score for ourselves, not scoring better than others. Then I'll try to teach you magic, or help you on your project to change Galarian, or clean your room for you. I'd do it even if you didn't pay me. He's sort of weird about wanting to pay people. Not that it would be bad if you did pay me, of course, but the knowledge is, to someone who follows Nethys, it's priceless. And in terms of what you probably guessed before that I was going to talk to you about, that could be part of it, too. You could use me however you wanted, anytime you wanted, in that way, too, even if you weren't going to give me a child then or ever. I'll do anything you like. You can ask or I can try to guess, and you won't have to try to make me feel good, too, unless you want to. I can just serve you, if you want. To somebody who belongs to Nithis, knowledge like that, is worth it. Keltham is not entirely unmoved by this. He's starting to wonder, in the back of his mind, what all of his other confessions will be like. This is starting to resemble a certain kind of Dathilani fiction in some ways. But this one is an interesting flavor, yeah. He's also not taking it entirely at face value, of course. He's not a complete idiot, and the resemblance to fiction may or may not be telling. How much trouble are you in if the Chelish government finds out about this? Keltham says, a careful kind of probe with many possible returns. I mean, it's hard to... 
Look, suppose I asked you in Dathilan whether people ever got in trouble for things they theoretically shouldn't get in trouble for. How would it work for you? Because she has absolutely no idea what Keltham is going to find at all plausible here. Governance gets in trouble for violating the rules same as anybody else. For them to avoid that, they'd have to, I don't know, put somebody into cryonic suspension and make it look like an accident somehow be in collusion with the keepers and get them to falsely declare an info hazard, which, you know, would not be even the tiniest bit easy at all. And there are lines of double-checking there, too. I mean, there's a much smaller order of very smart people whose point is basically supposed to be keep an eye on the keepers. I'm not sure what level of antisocial collusion you're trying to ask about or postulate. Things are just less organized in Galarion, Keltham. Sometimes people play things safer here than they must do in Dathilan, because they aren't connected to a giant miracle that stores all the knowledge in the world, and they don't know how everything works inside the villa they just came to, from the wizard school they were in before that. I mean, maybe if I suddenly vanish and you never hear from me again, or I'm suspiciously assassinated in the middle of class, that would be something to notice. She really hopes that she just unsigned her death warrant instead of signing it. I would not expect the typical member of the Chelish government to do that to me. I wouldn't expect them to do anything at all to me. What with the typical member of Chelish government being nowhere near her. But I'm in a different place than I was yesterday, and you expect me to be surer of myself than I am. I don't understand why you'd tell this to me, then. If it was true and not a trap set to see if I'm planning to betray Asmodeus. You're not worried about listeners behind the walls, magical eavesdropping? Think, think, think. I mean, if there are, that part of the government isn't famous for telling everything they hear to the rest of the world, or even the rest of the government, you know, and... I just... I think maybe Nethys would be pleased if I helped you learn magic or just helped you spread the kind of knowledge that you're spreading. You've changed my life much more than you realize, with what you said there, because of what happened inside me when I heard it. And it seemed right to tell you about that, and to offer to do what I can for you. Thank you for telling me, if you were in fact being honest. I'll keep your putative secret and won't use it against you, unless I relearn by means unconnected to how I first learned it, in the ways considered usual in Dathilan for keeping a secret that was promised. I will have to think about what that means for a relationship between us. I was not expecting that offer, and it's not something where I already know internally how I'll respond, even conditioned on all of that being completely true. Ione kneels in front of him and bows her head. I am at your command, and at your pleasure, teacher, she says, and maybe even manages to make it sound a little low and husky whenever you decide. And no matter what you decide, thank you. Keltham exits. It certainly has been a day. Ione straightens up. It still doesn't seem wise to think or feel anything unnecessary. Her heart is hammering very hard, nonetheless, and there is sweat, though not, she hopes, visible sweat. Well, it wouldn't be surprising if she looked nervous to whoever will be speaking to her now. Elias has a mage hand not quite gouge out her eyeball, even though he's tempted. It'll make her useless for the next ten minutes, and there's some information he ought to urgently have. But press against her eyeball, relentless enough to force her to turn her face. It would be pretty inconvenient, he says, to have someone permanently impersonate you. 
but I've got to say, you're shaping up to be even more inconvenient than that, which is really quite an achievement. Who was it? Can she hide it? Maybe pretend it was all a seduction scheme that got away from her? Ask for a talisman that makes her look like an oracle of Nethys? No, that's not going to work in real life. Somebody will check her current aura in detail before they give her a talisman like that. Nethys made me his oracle. I didn't ask for it. I didn't know it would happen. I was just thinking about wanting to know more things, and I suppose I thought too loudly. I will cooperate with the Chelish government in anything it asks, so long as that doesn't turn Nethys against me in my afterlife. Fail your will save. Say that again. She fails her will save. Nethys made me his oracle. I didn't ask for it or know it would happen. I'll cooperate with the Chelish government on anything that doesn't turn Nethys against me. To repeat word for word, you'll confirm once Keltham is competent enough to check the claim you're an oracle of Nethys that Cheliax isn't betraying him and that we're representing our church the way Nethys's church represents it. I will confirm once Keltham is competent enough to check the claim I'm an oracle of Nethys that Cheliax isn't betraying him and that we're representing our church the way Nethys's church represents it. It's serious misconduct to try to come to Keltham's attention just to alter the balance of considerations against killing you. If three girls do that, he's going to conclude something's up, maybe two. I was afraid that if I just let you find out and kill me, or remove me, which is what you'd obviously do, it would go against what Nethys wanted from me, and I don't know what Nethys does to mortals who offend him inside his afterlife. I just know that he can drive people mad at any time. I wasn't trying to inconvenience you. I wasn't even trying to live. I was just trying to make sure Nethys didn't shatter my soul for not trying. Well, I'll submit the situation for review, Elias says coldly, and now he can gouge her eyeball out, the conversation being over. Someone will come by to heal it in an hour or so. They're not savages. It's not her most painful punishment. Ionisala will lie on the floor and try not to move and hold a hand over the eye socket so she doesn't bleed out too much and endure. Everything has changed. People will still force her to let them read her mind, so there are a lot of things she should not think, must not think, about how everything has changed. Nethys is her god now. Not thinking that. Knowledge. Magic. Not thinking that. What's Nethys's afterlife like if she can serve him well? Not thinking that. Deep down, she really, really, really wasn't looking forward to. Definitely not thinking that. She wipes the smile hard off her face as soon as she notices that it's there. Otto Menz is as furious as she has ever been at any point in the last eon, which is something of a narrow range on both sides. But still, they never listen. She specifically told them, she told them all, that they were not allowed to do anything non-standard around that mortal, and then Nethys goes and drops four oracle levels on some nearby mortal that Otolmans would not have thought was particularly dangerous. But if Nethys wants this mortal to have four oracle levels, then she wants this mortal completely out of her multiverse, along with that other one, while Otolmans will not, of course, break the rules regardless of provocation. She knows how. The rules work on Galarian, and if Nethys is openly opposing her, which he most certainly now is, and doing so by means of granting levels to mortals, 
then that opens up more options for her as well. A halfling slave in the halls, performing his endless task of cleaning up after the idiots in their endless messes, is now, very suddenly, a fourth-level oracle of a Tolman's. He is immediately arrested by security. Keltham successfully finds his way back to his bedroom, lies down in bed, closes his eyes, and tries to think in a Dathalani deliberate resting pattern. He's not very good at it, but he knows it anyways, since it's one of those things where it's better if everybody knows how to do it, a little even if they're not very good at it, Carissa asking him what's chaotic for a Dathilani. Not thinking that. Ione speaking awkwardly, not with the dignified cheerfulness of her rare vocalizations, in the Liberi, bent in that strange lowered posture with her head facing down. Not thinking that. Every few hours he updates again about conditions in Galarian, being even worse, though apparently all random local landing regions are as bad as the world wound was successfully an overshoot of where that was heading. Not thinking that either. His brain needs to rest. He needs to figure out what people here use instead, if Cuddle Room doesn't translate to Taldane. And also, is there any way to figure out whether his contraception is still active, or if he would have gotten rid of it by using healing energy on himself last night? Maybe he can find security and ask them who to ask. Okay, both valid questions. But nonetheless, be still, his brain. This morning he got woken up by light in the windows, instead of waking up to his own rhythm and it is more than plausible that his brain will now benefit from at least a brief nap. Learning wizard magic will probably go better with relatively less tired brains. All right, you know what? There is a lot of divine interference here, and waiting until tonight to get the girls to sell their souls seems like it might be waiting too long. Elias goes after Carissa first, since she cannot, in fact, be gotten tonight. Carissa was going to take a bath, but manages to be graceful about being interrupted. Tell me, Elias says to her, how you reconcile the teachings of our god with the teachings of Doth Elan. Oh, wow, this conversation is going to suck. Doth Elan is different from our world, and I think less of Keltham's lessons transfer than he realizes, she says blandly. I forgot to mention, Elias says, that I'm in a hurry, and that your ability to say things that don't mean anything isn't in question. What's wrong? He's got to be wrong about law and chaos, because if that's all there was to it, some church would explain it that way, and they don't. He's got to be wrong about, uh, I think Dathilan teaches things well for if you're going for the Starstone, but badly for if you're going to hell, because you don't need a lot of initiative at making progress on unstructured questions and developing it before you're a devil. Seems like it involves a lot of indulging lazy human impulses. Cleverly said. Is that a trade you want to make, becoming less useful to hell after death to be more useful to Keltum? I think it serves Asmodeus for me to indulge weak human impulses temporarily, if that's all I can do to try to understand Dathilan's technology. We'll make Cheliax stronger and more powerful and more useful to him, and if I require more correction subsequently, so be it. I think you'll require different correction at least but there is opportunity to arrange it in advance. This is hardly even surprising, so it's confusing that Carissa feels like she's falling and like her fingertips are tingling. Of course! We've made arrangements with some devils for purchase contracts with the students here. Take your time to read it over, of course. We're going to invite most of the students to a signing ceremony tonight, but it sounds like you've made conflicting plans. 
Well, I don't know. Can I bring a date? Asks Carissa sweetly. Elias slaps her harder than that really warranted, though it did warrant it. Hard enough to kill someone who wasn't a wizard. Maybe he's otherwise having a bad day. You have an hour to read it over and request any changes to the terms, he says, and apparently leaves. Carissa is not under the impression she is alone. She sits down, reads through the contract, which doesn't take an hour, and then takes her bath. She's not sure when else she's going to have the opportunity. Project Nap, currently making excellent progress. Elias returns at precisely the time he said he would and starts a summons. Did you have revisions? No, it's a standard contract. She's read them before. Did you pick your reward of appropriately commensurate value? Yes. Be a professional. Do not squeal and jump up and down. I selected permanent, non-dispellable arcane sight. That's what I took too, Elias says, almost warmly. She's not going to get drawn in to small talk. Do you want me to tell the kids it's a standard contract? I don't know how many of them will have looked one up. The ones who don't have the initiative to get confirmation they have a standard contract don't have a standard contract. Carissa reads hers one last time to double-check. Fistophilus, inequivalent exchange, E.R. Wayne, summoned, he comes. Ah, Cheliax, he adores Cheliax. The contracts are on the bare side of what'll work under law, and the Chelish take them anyways because they've been indoctrinated to believe that they're going to hell regardless. And they're not even wrong. But a slave who can't escape is so much more valuable as a slave and the contract isn't worth but a fraction of that increase in value for the sort of soul that Cheliax sends to sign. They've been given a rather selective history of contracts with devils, and they believe they're doing well for themselves as negotiators. Devils fight and maim each other for the privilege, to be summoned as contracting devils in Cheliax, because the taste of it is so very, very sweet. He doesn't speak at first simply takes the contract and reads it through. Standard. For Cheliax. He turns then to the little mortal. And who is this worm who seeks to merchant her soul, already damned, to he who is already its master? She feels like a silly little kid, which is, of course, the intent, and also basically true, next to a devil. Well, she's doing more for Asmodeus than this devil is likely to have the chance to, She's going to revolutionize Golarion. Carissa Sevar, she says clearly and mostly calmly. A human would think she was calm. Previously in hell. The most important thing to understand about a god is that under almost all circumstances, and with extremely rare exceptions, their attention is not only divided, but splintered. Perhaps unwittingly, perhaps not, Irori has threatened to get the better of Asmodeus in a bargain. Pride is among his domains. Asmodeus is a greater and much older god than Irori, closer to the center of all things. Compared to Irori, Asmodeus's facets are larger. The totality of the gem that is him, vastly bigger. Asmodeus is also in many more places at once compared to Irori. His decision must be the equivalent of a snap decision made in reflex, in much less time than Irori had to think. Yet even his reflex thoughts are vast and able. The bargain now sealed between himself and Irori specifies much. 
to avoid Asmodeus getting the better of Irori in simple and obvious ways. He may not direct his church to specially monitor or distrust the mortal Carissa Seva, nor, through the particulars by which the mortal is given freedom of travel, in Cheliax, if the time comes to sell its soul, may Asmodeus insinuate anything which works to that mortal's disadvantage, or makes it a target in the eyes of his church. Asmodeus is constrained in how he may expect the results of his commands to appear, their impacts upon the mortal, and there are old treaties regarding what the denizens of hell may say to the living besides. There is nonetheless a loophole in all that, if Asmodeus is giving an unbound mortal free passage through Cheliax. The whole affair must look at least a little odd. The contract cannot demand that these events not look odd. He cannot set his church upon the mortal. By direct command, nor by insinuation, and what he knows or suspects his church will conclude. He cannot disadvantage the mortal, cannot work against it. That does leave open other possibilities. It is possible that Irori, taking longer to think, foresaw this very loophole, and that Asmodeus might try to exploit it. If Asmodeus thought the contract to his own favor at all, or regretted it after, and that Irori deliberately forbore to close it, because it is not Irori's way to protect mortals from trials. If so, Asmodeus will take that play. He does not know exactly what Irori saw when Irori looked at this mortal, but when Asmodeus looked at it from his own angle, it did not seem like the sort of mortal looking to flee Cheliax at the first opportunity to take an atonement. And besides, if Asmodeus does not play this move, then Irori gets the better of him in a contract. All this goes through a splintered facet of Asmodeus's attention in a fractional moment of reflex, before that splintered fragment directs a thought to a duke of hell, who will not be shattered by it, and then goes on to other parts of his business elsewhere on this plane. The thought consists of the relevant facts and a statement of intents. Greater attention to the mortal details and specifying a precise policy around them is what underlings are for. Sign, then, says the devil. He watches Carissa closely for any sign of hesitancy or falsehood in the motion. A human wouldn't detect any. Carissa has known since she was two that she is going to go to hell and might as well arrange in advance and get something for it. She takes the pen and pulls the contract over to sign. He reaches out and snaps the pen from her hand as it is about to touch the contract. So eager, he purrs. But no. His rather mystifying instructions leave some leeway here, and he is curious about how the mortal Carissa Savar will react. He is curious of what material a mortal such as this is made. Not at all, at first, because that's a good default. Not reacting at all. Elias is preparing a spell with the leisurely motions of a combat caster who isn't in a combat sort of hurry, but no matter how much he takes his time, she can't outrun him, and Keltham will notice, Keltham will be suspicious. Is there a problem? She says a little sharply. I have a date, you see, so perhaps you'd better point it out. Oh, he likes this one. He'd like to rip her heart out, specifically. But that's how it is in hell. 
Rejoice, mortal, for you have somehow come, however momentarily, to the attention of a god. Asmodeus has made known to us a tiny fraction of his will, and you are implicated in it. Elias, she notes with distant satisfaction, has stopped moving. There's a lot of that going around, she wants to make her lips say. It's the perfect response, but she cannot actually get the words out, or any words. Here is the will of Asmodeus, as interpreted by Hell, to his slaves of church and queen. Carissa Sevar is not to sell her soul to Hell this day. Carissa Sevar is to be allowed freedom of travel beyond Cheliacs, as if she had sold her soul. Carissa Sevar is to be allowed continued access to her teacher, as if she had sold her soul. In matters apart from those, Carissa Sevar is to be trusted, rewarded, and punished no more and no less than she has earned by Asmodeus's law. Asmodeus's church need not concern itself proactively with Carissa Sevar's correction beyond the ordinary course of Asmodeus's law, but if Carissa Sevar seeks out theological instruction of her own accord, her questions are to be given priority as though she were Asmodeus's own cleric of the fourth circle. Asmodeus's queen and her slaves need not concern themselves proactively with Carissa Savar's descent into cruelty, wickedness, and the darkness of her own soul. But if Carissa Savar seeks to indulge of her own accord, she is to be prioritized for support, as though she were the inheriting daughter of a Count of Cheliax. Do you hear and understand these instructions, slave of church and queen? Elias highly values his reputation for composure. He values even more highly his ability to only say, Yes, I understand, if he actually understands. So he pauses for several seconds, reviewing in his head. I hear and understand, he says. Carissa does not understand, and doesn't need to. Right now, one thing at a time. Here is the will of Asmodeus, as interpreted by Hell, to his slave, Carissa Sivar. But understand and be warned that these are not Asmodeus's true thoughts, only Hell's own understanding of them, passed down from Asmodeus to Duke to Baron to this one small finger of Hell. Asmodeus's thoughts may not be known to the likes of us, and their truths are forbidden to speak in this world. These are not Asmodeus's words to Carissa Sevar, but only our understanding of his will. Serve me well in this world, and you shall be raised high in it. Remember that you are not Irori. Do not think yourself likely to succeed in perfecting yourself without divine aid. Acknowledge the desires in yourself that have no place in Axis, and accept that your rightful place is in Hell. Come to me in Hell, without thought of other choices, as mortals once did in the days before they were cursed with their own wills, and you shall be among the most treasured of my possessions. Carissa is not so overawed that she forgets to think that among the many reasons it might serve Asmodeus to express such a thing, it's true does not rate particularly high. But she nods. I understand. Thank you. He stares at her for a long moment. You should be more excited and grateful, little mortal. Even most barons of hell have never come to our lord's direct attention. It is doubtful that I ever will through all eternity. 
I would dearly like to eat your heart right now. But, see, if she twitches her face, she would start crying, and that would be terribly pathetic, and... And being small and reasonable was a good strategy ten minutes ago and isn't now. Come on, Carissa. If you play the wrong game, you lose. She reaches into the circle, reaches for his heart, or where it would be if he were human. Did you hear what you just said? She says. We'll see who gets to eat whose heart. It occurs to him then, though only briefly, that perhaps he ought to be the one who is afraid. If she succeeds... He turns from her. I hope you fail and are cursed, and that I am privileged to have custody of your soul. I shall go file the request for it now, in fact, and he departs. I have a shopping list, she says to Elias, turning around. Do you now, he says. I'm going to need to be prettier. Every Count's heir I've ever seen was stunningly beautiful. Don't you dare comment on my looks. I'll stab you. I'm going to need to be prettier, and I want a headband and an allowance for crafting. I don't actually know how much the inheriting daughter of a count of... I mean, presumably they get their allowance from their county, which you haven't got. Well, maybe you should get me one. That's absurd, but Elias looks unsure if it's absurd, which is very satisfying. Is this what gratitude for the extraordinary indulgence of your god looks like? Gratitude? He wants a return, and I'm going to be perfect. Can I have the other girl's souls? No, says Elias Abarco, with the first certainty he's mustered in a while. Some kind of option on them? Equity? You aren't worth a damn thing yet, kid. Asmodeus noticed me, says Carissa Savar, but a rather different Carissa Savar than she was ten minutes ago. Also, she's about to have a panic attack, but she's pretty sure she can glare Elias out of the room before that. Keltham wakes up, still feeling a bit muzzy. What a long and complicated day he has had, full of surprises. For a moment he envies the women in his research harem, who just get to hear lots of new and exciting knowledge and got raises and a sex-flavored mission and didn't have to compose new lectures or try to figure out Galarian. Not that it's bad that their lives are less stressful than his, just it would be good if his life was also less stressful than his life, Maybe he'll put in a bit less effort into his first shot at wizardry than he was previously planning, so he'll have brain power to spare for his date with Carissa after that. After dinner. After a light dinner. He shouldn't be either hungry or overfull while you know that stuff is going on. His life sure is complicated these days, full of structural uncertainty and random assorted difficult decisions. But Keltham's not going to let that phase him. Doth Elon raises strong minds. But before he continues on to prove that yet again, he's going to lie here in bed, with eyes closed a little longer, waiting for the muzziness to go away of its own accord. And then he'll either head off to find somebody for wizard lessons, Ioni, or maybe join people for dinner, depending on how long he actually slept, because once again he forgot about that part where he is no longer wearing a wristwatch. Elias leaves. She should not assume she's alone, but she doesn't have that much more stamina for maintaining composure. She kneels at her bedside in a distinctly imperfect posture for prayer and hides her face in her hands and trembles violently until it's possible to think about something other than the apparent deficit of air in this room. That takes a couple of minutes. Asmodeus noticed her, and Asmodeus has instructions for her and Asmodeus does not want her to sell her soul, which, 
Okay, this is the most trivial feature of the situation, but it means she does not get permanent, undispellable arcane sight, and she was really looking forward to that. And all of the other girls are going to have it. She's going to be falling behind in magic lessons and have no way to explain why. Not that she's ungrateful, but... Asmodeus could have given his instructions and also taken her soul. Presumably that's false, actually. Presumably it's actually important for some reason that Carissa keeps her soul. She doesn't understand and she shouldn't expect to understand. The reason here is not going to be in that space where a human thinking about it really hard can comprehend it. It's going to be in the space that a human can't make any sense of at all. But there are some features of the situation that she ought to be capable of comprehending, or no one would have tried to tell her things. As Modius noticed, he noticed that she was trying to build the true philosophy, the version that they would have come up in Dathilan where everyone is smarter and lawfuler and carefuler if they were also Asmodian, and he thought it was worth directing her to do it properly. And his direction was... She should write it down before she forgets. She stops praying to do that. Serve me well in this world, and you shall be raised high in it. Remember that you are not Irori. Do not think yourself likely to succeed in perfecting yourself without divine aid. Acknowledge the desires in yourself that have no place in Axis, and accept that your rightful place is in Hell. Come to me in hell without thought of other choices, as mortals once did in the days before they were cursed with their own wills, and you shall be among the most treasured of my possessions. And written down, it's kind of weird, and she puzzles over it for a little while. She was trying to build Asmodianism as smart, lawful humans would have been able to generate it, able to understand it, able to build a society around it. But she was getting it wrong. You are not Irori. What an odd thing to say. She didn't think she was Irori. Well, maybe her vanity, in fact, got itself pointed that direction without her conscious attention. But she's not sure the problem is the vanity, because in the same breath she was promised to be raised high in the world, if she serves as Modaius well in it, and among his most treasured possessions. Acknowledge the desires in yourself that have no place in Axis. The problem is the lawful neutral. Keltham is lawful neutral. Keltham has taught her everything that she now understands about the true theology, about what it would mean to have free will and know what to do with it. But Keltham is lawful neutral, even if he thinks he's evil, so his conception is a lawful neutral conception of how things work. And Carissa belongs to Asmodeus, who is evil, and so she's supposed to be designing the evil version of that, not the neutral one. Carissa has not actually put a lot of thought into what evil is. Pretty much everyone is evil, because that's how Phrasma sorts them. Doing big, ambitious things in the world is evil. Keltham's probably going to start reading evil at some point because he did something Phrasma objects to. He's not in the 2% most good people, and pretty much everyone else goes to hell. But... When she says Keltham's neutral, she's not actually talking about what Phrasma has to say. She's talking about something else? Keltham assumes they're all getting paid. Keltham would be deeply upset if he learned they weren't getting paid, and it's not because it affects him in the slightest. His sense of honor, fair play, however he contextualizes it, 
Rules out slavery, rules out assassinations, rules out tricking people. They're jokingly betting on whether Keltham's a sadist, and she bets he is, but he didn't jump at punishing the students. He fretted that he had no idea how to do it in a way that improved their understanding of the subject material and was worried he'd teach them wrongly to be afraid of school. She's not actually sure which parts of that are lawful neutral and which parts are Dothilon. But they stand out as ways that an Asmodean is not. As ways that the ideal Asmodean theology would not be. And when she was trying to build something shaped like Keltham, Asmodeus himself reached out and conveyed, that's too lawful neutral to be the truth. Give me the evil version. Well, Carissa can do that. Carissa has spent a lot of time worrying if she is loyal enough, but almost none worrying if she is evil enough. She's not squeamish. She doesn't refuse to report people out of misguided sympathy for them. She has whipped students who get bad grades and practiced deadly spells on weeping prisoners. She is definitely going to go to hell, and it did not really occur to her to specifically worry about how evil she was within the very broad category of everyone who gets sent to hell. She hasn't heard of anyone getting in trouble for not being evil enough. She hasn't even been threatened. Now, with getting in trouble for not being evil enough. And maybe that's the point. Because there's a kind of evil built of pure, sharp selfishness. The choice to be concerned with yourself, and not with any of the other idiots populating the world. The thing she told Keltham. Evil as prioritizing the self. She thinks she's perfectly adequate at that, if she does say so herself. The devil wasn't like that. The devil saw her, spoke two minutes to her, and wanted to personally rip her into pieces. Because it'd be fun. Because having seen her whole, destroying her would be more of a treat than destroying some other person. And there was a difference, though she hopes no one noticed it, when she stepped into his circle and threatened him back. He was threatening her because he felt like it. She was threatening him because she'd noticed that if she didn't learn to play, she was going to lose very, very fast. She is pretty sure, in hindsight, that every evil thing she's ever done has been the first kind, the weaker kind, the evil of choosing Carissa Savar over every other person in the universe. She feels entirely unapologetic about all of that evil— Certainly no other person in the universe is choosing Carissa Savar over themselves. And if they were, that'd be stupid and contemptible of them. And Asmodeus is saying that that's not enough. Well, it's clearly enough to get into hell. It's not enough for the nature that devil possessed, not enough for her to actually succeed at the problem she has somewhat audaciously set herself— of explaining theology better so people aren't afraid of not understanding it any more than they're afraid of not understanding math. So they glimpse the outlines of the big, real thing there, even if that's all they glimpse. Acknowledge the desires in yourself that have no place in Axis. Mainly, it's the desire to be on the winning side, coupled with the conviction, Axis, isn't it? But she's pretty sure that's not what he means. What was it the devil said to Elias? She should write that down, too. She's going to need to use it to argue for a headband. Asmodeus's queen and her slaves need not concern themselves proactively with Carissa Savar's descent into cruelty, wickedness, and the darkness of her own soul. 
but if Carissa Savar seeks to indulge of her own accord, she is to be prioritized for support as though she were the inheriting daughter of a Count of Cheliacs. It's embarrassing, but she never until this point considered that prominent leaders might be so cruel and wicked because they specifically got training and theological education in it, because it is part of what it means to be a servant of Asmodeus. Probably you can't offer that to the whole country because it won't run well if everyone's going around trying to develop their capacity for cruelty and wickedness. But you can offer it to the person who is trying to reform all of Asmodean theology. All right. What's an action plan for learning cruelty and wickedness and the darkness of her own soul? Possibly it makes sense to start by observation? She watched Contessa Laratha and knew that she wanted that, wanted to grow up to be that, with an intensity that would have carried her through murdering lots of innocent people, which isn't quite the thing, but it's a start. Possibly it makes sense to start by asking. She has specifically been told that she can get support if she only asks. There's another thing she needs to master here. The other thing the devil had that she didn't was presentation. Carrying himself in the world like he did things for his own reasons. And of course they were Asmodeus's reasons. He said it outright, but... But he carried himself like he was enjoying every minute of it. Carissa carries herself like she's loyal and competent and pretty sure she is getting a good grade. And that's not how to get a good grade in wickedness. There's a reason, Asmodeus said, the desires in yourself that have no place in Axis, rather than just acquire some desires that have no place in Axis. And she doesn't think it's because she has a secret kink for torture she would have noticed that. It's because that's a way you can relate to evil, not as some habits of mind for the defense of the self under threat, but as the delight of the self in pursuing all it pleases, and in serving those who have even more power to do that. I am ever your obedient servant, she thinks at Asmodeus, though it feels a lot scarier now that she knows there's a minute chance he's paying attention. Is there an available wicked thing to do? She could... Oh, shit, she's late for Keltham's magic lessons. She can hurry off to those and worry about this later. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.